Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from writer and director Peter Kosminski about his new Channel 4 cyber thriller The Undeclared War and his concerns over what the privatisation of the UK public broadcaster would mean. New Media Metrics, Mark Montefiore and Jeff Hirsch on how the company behind Canadian sitcom Letterkenny is scaling up, and Dea Planeta Entertainment's Diego Ibanez on the opportunities and challenges facing animation in Spain. UK public broadcaster Channel 4 and NBC Universal owned US streamer Peacock united last year to order a six-part cyber thriller from celebrated director and writer Peter Kosminski. The Undeclared War saw Kosminski, whose prior Channel 4 credits include political dramas The Government Inspector, The Promise and The State, reunite with Playground founder Colin Callender, with whom he collaborated on the Golden Globe and BAFTA-winning BBC miniseries Wolf Hall. He spoke to Michael Pickard about making this latest series, which debuted recently, and his concerns over government plans to privatise Channel 4. Peter, just we'll all know your work as a, as a writer and a director. Um, tell us about the last few years. Um, you know, we last saw, I think, you on The State, um, which was obviously a very topical and timely drama. What is it that brought you to the undeclared war uh, for your next project? Well, it was initially because I wanted to find an opportunity to work with Colin Callender again. Colin and I um, uh, worked on the uh, adaptation of Wolf Hall, uh, the first two novels uh, by Hilary Mantel, both of which won Booker Prizes, uh, about um, Thomas Cromwell's life in the court of Henry VIII. And it, for me, it was a really happy experience working with him. And so we were talking um, about five years ago about what we might do together. And although we did Wolf Hall, obviously my normal uh, area is, is much more contemporary stories, usually based very heavily on research. Uh, and out of that conversation came um, the undeclared war. And what was it about an impending kind of global cyber war that uh, interested you or or perhaps was there a nugget of research that you 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 came across and and that led you perhaps down down a rabbit hole into uh, what you know may or may not happen in in the next few years? Well, I think that the reason why I get involved in 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 a subject is tediously always exactly the same. Uh, I find something out that that I ha- didn't know and that seems to have some sort of public policy significance. And, you know, I'm a reasonably well-read person. I assume that if, if I'm not aware of it, then perhaps members of the general public are also not aware of it. After all, that's all I am, just a member of the public, really. And I had heard that there's this undeclared war going on in a new domain of conflict called the cyber domain. So you've got you know land, air, sea, and now you've got cyber. Because um, that's what we need in the world at the moment, isn't it? Another domain of conflict. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it seemed worthy of investigation. And, and the truth is, Michael, we look at lots of subjects. Um, not all of them get made into television programs. And as I said, that was five years ago. And it's taken five years of research uh, and script writing and production right through the COVID pandemic to bring the show to the screens. And, and you you mentioned yeah it's taken a long time and and the show is set 
2024, a couple of years in the future. I mean, how do you go about writing something sort of set in that near future period that is incredibly plausible um, and yet perhaps hopefully <laughs> slightly fantastical when you're researching for, for so many years? Surely the, the, the end, the goal keeps moving as the more you research and the more time you spend on something like this. You're absolutely right. Now, I used to work in, um, in current affairs and news uh, and then in documentaries and now in drama. And over, over those years and that progression, the immediacy of what I'm doing has slowly declined. You know, when I worked on shows like Newsnight, we thought of it an idea in the afternoon and it was on air in the evening. Uh, now I think of something and it takes five years or more to get it on the air. Um, when I did The Promise for Channel 4, it took 11 years. So the challenge, is exactly as you say, is always to try to find a way to make sure that the story you're telling will still be A, relevant, and B, feel topical when it actually gets to the screen. And I don't know how you do that, really. It's a it's a mixture of experience. You know, I've been making programs for broadcast for 42 years. Um, I think that that makes me what, what in our industry is termed a veteran. I'm not sure how I feel about that expression, but anyway, a veteran I am. So you just get an instinct, you know, and, and what, it's interesting that one of the biggest battles I have to fight in my job is when something happens, various voices saying, well, well, you've, you've got to accommodate that. You've got to rewrite and trying to say, well, obviously on occasions you do, but, but sometimes saying, well, look, this is top of the news agenda now, and it may still be somewhere on the news agenda in, in a month, maybe even in three months. But this isn't going out for two years. So we sort of have to take the longer view. So when you're looking at research and you're seeing that, that there's an active war in the cyber domain involving China, involving Russia, involving Britain, involving America and other states, Israel, Iran, North Korea, and you can see that there's a direction of travel, it's not rocket science to extrapolate that that direction and try to work out where it might have landed uh, by 2024. But but my job is not to say, this is what will happen. My job is to say, here's one possible and entirely feasible tomorrow. And it acts, I hope, as a cautionary tale. I mean, the undeclared war presents a chilling view, I think, of, of one possible future and perhaps raises a flag to say, if we don't want to end up in this situation, we still have time to uh, to take avoiding action yeah no absolutely i mean certainly the just the first episode with the initial cyber attack on on gchq brings home quite how much we're already reliant on the internet for for almost everything <laughs> and uh, and one little thing can can upset that i mean yeah just it just in terms of the story then you know we meet sarah who's this young woman going to work at gchq how did you come up with i guess the the storyline that we will follow her through and and i guess more specifically following her as a character and her perspective of the world that she will take us into well it's a fairly organic process and again a familiar one from my point of view the way that the process works is that we have um, a team of research and my job at that stage is to is to sort of set an agenda for them and to say investigate this look into this and they write up their findings and that turns into often and certainly in this case a massive body of research running to tens of thousands of pages and I try to keep up as best I can as they're working but I may be working on other things at the time and then there comes a point where the research really is largely ended and I sit down and I work 
my way through all that research, making my notes, notes of the things that I think, you know, might work in a drama. And as I'm doing that, I have a separate piece of paper or several sheets of paper. And that's where I'm making character notes. And it's really as I'm working my way through the research, and that process can take months and did in this case, you look at the page that's about a main character and you start, something starts to sort of emerge. I, I don't go into these things thinking, right, we need a character who is young, uh, who's super precocious in terms of her ability in coding, who um, is a person of color, who has a slightly difficult personality. You know, Sarah isn't already in my mind as that kind of character. When we start, I don't know if it's going to be a young person, an old person, a male, a female, whatever. Um, it sort of emerges. And again, I, I suppose this is because I've done it quite a few times, that you can see that to tell the story that you want to tell, and given that I always is tell the stories and shoot from a kind of point of view uh, approach. So, you know, if Sarah's on screen, we don't really see things that she doesn't see. You think, well, this is the kind of character that would help us understand and inhabit this material. And then the characters develop a life of their own. And, you know, they have a, a private life and a, an emotional life uh, that grows up and out from under the body of research. But it's a useful starting point. And I guess, interestingly, I've, I've watched the first three episodes last night and uh, episode three is, is um, I guess, a Russian episode. It's, it's in, set in Russia and we follow one of the characters through their backstory. Tell me a bit about that because yeah, we follow, we kind of leave Sarah for one episode and take a different character's perspective through their own story. What was the kind of the thinking behind that and how does that maybe play out further along in the story, would you say? Well, I'm nervous, obviously, of too many spoilers. I don't know whether people listening to this or reading this in, in on your website would uh, not have yet watched all, all six episodes. Um, but there really are two ways to approach a story like this. Let's say, for example, that, that Britain is under attack, uh, cyber attack uh, from Russia. And that's the premise in this series. And the attack seems, though highly damaging, to be fairly straightforward initially. But then as the episodes unravel, almost like the proverbial Russian doll, it turns out that there are other elements hidden within the attack. And um, it's the unraveling of those and the impact of those that, that is the spine of the series. So you have a choice when you, you want to tell that kind of story. The enemy can, or, or you know, your opponent can be a sort of faceless other. And that's a completely legitimate way of telling a story. You tell it from the point of view of those that are on the receiving end. Or you can give the enemy a face. And I made the decision early on that I wanted to go with the latter. So at the end of episode two, without wanting to give too much away, there's a, there's a surprise for Sarah and possibly for the audience as well. And to really understand how that surprise has come about, we have to go back in time 15 months and we have to shift to another country and another language and, and actually another set of characters. But it all did flow from that desire that the enemy 
should not just be an ill-defined other. Also, as we researched the story, something emerged that that really I had never suspected. Although when, when you look at quite sort of specific periodicals, it's all there if you want to read it, that there's a real philosophy, as far as the Russians are concerned, that guides this. It's not just a set of random attacks designed to destabilize our society and, and ultimately our democracy, though that is certainly the effect. There's a plan afoot here. There's a template and a plan that is well understood as a military strategy. And that ultimately is is the thing that I found most chilling about all of this, that we are in the middle of a game. We are being played and where our um, responses have been predicted and factored in to the next level, if you like, of the game. So I thought it would be interesting to spend the first two and a half of six episodes in complete ignorance of that fact, that, that, that this is not a random set of events designed to destabilize our society, that there's a, pa- a plan here. And then to discover that plan and what that plan is partway through episode three, and you have to go to Russia to, to do so, since they're the architects of all of this, and then to watch the rest of the series, knowing what that plan is, but watching our main characters, our GCHQ characters, who do not know what that plan is, struggling to understand what's going on around them. So that was an early part of of my plan, if you like, to draw attention to that strategy. And uh, that's that's one of the functions of episode three. You mentioned GCHQ there. I mean, how supportive were they of this? And and, uh, did they enjoy (laughs) maybe reading that you were making a show set in, in, you know, that government organization? How have they been? Do they let you kind of work with them at all? Or is this kind of very much an independent piece that um, is just set in that world? That's a good question, obviously. Uh, Unfortunately, not one that I can answer. Um, (laughs) The basis on which people talk to us is that it's for background only, it's off the record, and that we will, you know, never quote the things they say, never use them in a book, never confirm or deny who's spoken to us. And that's the reason, I think, why people are prepared to talk to me as as a dramatist in the way that they might might not be prepared to talk on the record to a news journalist for, or even a feature feature journalist. Um, people open up surprisingly. And in the, this case, it was a whole range of people over over years, not only in this country, people in some cases who, yes, had had some experience of of government work, uh, but many who had not. So I can't tell you, unfortunately, whether we had any contact with GCHQ and and if we did, what their attitude before, during and after has been. But I can tell you, because it's there for all to see, that Paul Chichester, who's one of the few people who works at GCHQ, who's open with his identity and he's the head of the National Cyber Security Center which is a big par- part of GCHQ which deals with malware has tweeted to say that he sat up all night watching all six episodes in a kind of binge and he thinks it's really good and he thinks it's pretty accurate so uh, I, I don't have to confirm that it's there for all to see and obviously we as program makers were thrilled to read that because it feels like 
like a vote of confidence in what we've done. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that feedback is amazing. And and I, I was, it, it struck me when I was watching the show that perhaps um, a drama set in the world of computer coding and, and sort of cybercrime might not be the most visually um, appealing, uh, you know, story for the medium. And uh, so that meant I was interested in, in the way you dramatised, um, you know, Sarah's, you know, adventures in coding where initially at the start of episode one, I wasn't quite sure what I was watching. Um, it was a bit like she was in a computer game or something. And of course it emerged that this was your way of demonstrating her mind going through the code. I wondered as a director, how you kind of came to that conclusion and perhaps your overall visual approach to, to sort of telling this story. I mean, there's no doubt that that at a kind of superficial level, when we first started talking about the, the project that became the undeclared war, it was immediately obvious that we had a huge challenge which was that you know people don't want to sit and watch people endlessly sitting at the computer screens and staring at lines of incomprehensible code but beyond that the more i worked with people who who operate in this area and particularly those who are you know in the forefront of this kind of and who are the best at it and as you may know it's quite a neurodiverse catchment it became clear to me that often as not um, people who do this don't think as I do, or, or perhaps as as ordinary, you know, non-computer literate people do. And certainly a character like Sarah, who's represented as a kind of coding prodigy, doesn't see those lines of code on the screen with sort of commands and numbers and in the way that certainly I would if I were to stare at this stuff. She would see it much more broadly in terms of actions and consequences. And I thought, how do I depict her mind and the way she sees navigating through malware? And in particular, remember, Sarah's a hacker, and her job often as not is to break into things. And although, you know, in computer terms, you might confront um, something called a port, which is a way into a computer, and you might find various tools that would allow you, you to sort of lever your way in, it's still really pretty opaque to, to a non-technical person. But I think thought, well, we could come up with events that everyone understands, things, you know, vis visual depictions of, of things in the real world that will be a useful metaphor for what she's doing within the computer and help the audience understand what she's doing and also how her mind works and the leaps of intuition that she makes. So she is faced with obstacles and she chooses strategies to overcome those obstacles. How does she do that? How does she think of those things? Uh, and what you know, on what resources does she call? So I ended up with this idea of Sarah wearing a tool belt, rather like a gunslinger might wear a gun belt in, in the Wild West. And into that tool belt can come tools that she needs contextually. And people are probably familiar on their computers with contextual menus. So what's on that menu will vary depending upon which application you're using or what's happening within that application. So you can you can right click on the document and suddenly there's a whole new set of menu items available because that's what you might need in this situation. And, and Sarah's tool belt is the same. So when she walks up to a, to a door with a padlock on it, suddenly there's um, a rather bulky crowbar in her tool belt. Well, that certainly wasn't there before. 
and it certainly isn't there immediately afterwards. So in this world, there are all sorts of continuity weirdnesses. You know, tools disappear. You know, in other situations, you'd have people writing in saying, oh, you made a bit of a howler. What happened to that? Was there in one shot and missing the next? And then you go into a door into what appears to be a little chalet, and inside there's a brightly lit gymnasium. You know, and this is an attempt by us to show how Sarah's mind navigates the various obstacles with which she's presented. No, I thought it was really interesting, especially as, as you just said, that first scene between not having a tool belt and suddenly she's got a tool belt. I did rewind it once just to check that I hadn't missed anything. And, uh, and obviously afterwards it becomes clear and then I was able to enjoy the further sequences uh, a bit more, definitely. And uh, and I just wonder, you, you know, Channel 4 is in the news itself a, a lot at the moment with uh, the privatisation plans. And I wondered, you know, with your relationship with Channel 4, how would you describe them as a broadcaster, you know, working with them? And, and what would you just say about the plans that the government are kind of putting forward at the moment? Well, two parts to your questions, obviously, it's an extremely relevant question. Um, Channel 4 is historically a, a great company with which to work if you do the kinds of things that I do. They're brave, they're receptive, they're ambitious, and they are very program maker friendly. And they're brave for the audience, if that doesn't sound patronizing. They, they're not always saying, well, the audience won't get that, you know, which in my experience is rubbish. The audience, if what you're doing makes sense and is, you know, is part of a compelling story, the, you know, don't patronize your audience. And Channel 4 takes a very similar view. But it's the very things that make Channel 4 such a brilliant and unusual place to work, which are directly put being put at threat by this vicious proposal. You know, if Channel 4 is bought by an international conglomerate, it will secure its financial future, no doubt, because it wouldn't be purchased to fail. But it won't have any kind of continuing obligation to make the uniquely British types of programmes for which it is rightly well known. I mean, let's look at the environment for a moment. We have the streamers, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Hulu, Peacock, Disney Plus, the list goes on. It's an increasing list. And they do a fantastic job. Don't misunderstand me. I watch a lot of their output and they're brilliant. And and it's been a wonderful revolution in, in, you know, it is truly a golden age for, for viewers, but they are unregulated and it's not really feasible to regulate them because they operate entirely in the international arena. Their only obligations are to make money for their shareholders and to maximize their audiences. Channel 4 is regulated, as is the BBC and Channel 5 and the other public service broadcasters, ITV, you know, here in Britain. And they have regulatory obligations and Channel 4 does specifically to do many things. But one of them is to make distinctively British programs. And there are some stories, take many of the things I've made in the relatively recent past that might have be of some interest internationally, but are primarily UK stories with UK characters at their centre. I'm working at the moment on a drama for the BBC about the Grenfell Tower fire, and we've been researching it since the fire itself took place. And it's, um, I think, most people here in this country 
country would say it was without question a really important story to tell. But I don't know how much interest in it there would be in Wisconsin. You know, uh, Channel 4 and the other public service broadcasters have an obligation, the regulatory obligation, to make programs for us, for the UK audience. And um, my fear is that that great work that they've done will disappear. If you look, for example, at ITV, when the 15 companies that made up ITV coalesced into one ITV, there were all kinds of undertakings given about program standards. But as somebody who used to work for Yorkshire Television for 10 years, with the greatest respect to my colleagues at ITV, there were many, many years when the programs collapsed in terms of their strength and ambition. And the twin objectives of shareholder profit and maximizing the audience dominated to the exclusion of all else. Now, I think ITV is sort of finding its way again in the last year or two, but it's been a long haul. And my fear is that no matter what guarantees and undertakings are given by this government, and even seem to be sort of hardwired into the process, over a relatively short period of time, they will be whittled away and watered down. The new body will say it can't compete and can't survive commercially with these restrictions, just as ITV did when it first came into existence as a as a single entity. And Channel 4 will just be another commercial broadcaster. And everything that's unique about it and unique about the types of programs it makes will disappear. And what's truly frightening to me is that there is no constituency for this change. It wasn't in the Tory manifesto. Polls consistently suggest that there's no majority for it amongst the parliamentary Conservative Party. There's no real financial case for it because Channel 4 is actually doing quite well at the moment. The only reason for it is narrow political dogma because this branch of this Conservative Party has an ideological objection to public ownership of any kind and their instinct is just to sell everything irrespective of the cultural damage it may do. And that's why I called it vicious, because vicious it is. And the British public, the viewing public, will be the worse for it. Peter Kosminski speaking with Michael Pickard. Earlier this year, Toronto-based Numetric Media, the company behind hit Canadian sitcom Letter Kenny, unveiled several key hires and a plan to evolve from an independent production company into a comedy-focused entertainment studio. At the time, it brought on former Bell Media exec Jeff Hirsch and veteran comedy exec Bill Lundy to help spearhead a new phase of growth. Currently, the company's slate includes Letterkenny and its spin-off series Shawzy, Children Ruin Everything and the newly greenlit Bria Mac Gets Alive. New Metric Media Chief Executive and Founder Mark Montefiore and Hirsch spoke to Jordan Pinto recently at Banff World Media Festival about the company's new structure, opportunities to acquire production companies and IP in the Canadian market and building comedy franchises that can be exported across English language territories. So uh, we got a new structure at, at Numetric. You know, up until three months ago, uh, we had a growing team. Uh, there was 14 of us. Um, and uh, mostly everybody reported either directly or indirectly to me. Um, so whether you're on the business team, which is business and legal, or finance and accounting, um, or you're on the production team, or on the development creative team, um, that's, uh, um, that all 
one way, shape, or form important to me. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, we're trying to grow and scale that's just not sustainable. Uh, so one of the conversations that we were talking with Jeff in the early days was, well, how do we look at this and restructure this in a way that allows for less bottleneck, allows the teams to be able to move uh, more seamlessly and quicker, um, and, uh, and allow the autonomy to be able to grow and scale. Um, so how we've uh, reorganized the structure so far, and this is constantly gonna be evolving and whatnot, uh, but basically taking, um, there's the creative, um, the creative bucket, and uh, which has all the creative development, uh, branding, uh, brand focus, uh, brand building, and production. Uh, that falls into my bucket. Um, and uh, Jeff has all the monetization and the business buckets. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think part? so. Like, so Mark kind of takes, I, I like to call it, he has two dual roles, even though he's one person. So he's both, you know, the president and CEO, but he's also the chief content officer, mm -hmm. effectively. And so that way we're also, as we think through it, we kind of think through it in that, that basis. Yeah. So, and the other thing to add is, we're, so we're also um, actively growing the, the company. Mm -hmm. You might have seen my hundred or 10 posts for, for <laughs> other, you know, other posts. So we're hiring 10 people. But we kind of thought through it, really what we're trying to do is, ramp up the input. Mm -hmm. So when I say input, you know, we're building a, a larger development team. So as a, if you kind of think through it, I'll take you a step back. The 14 people were largely set up to deliver our productions. Mm -hmm. And the Mark productions we currently, currently have. Currently have. Yeah. And now the goal is the same, obviously, and we have more productions to deliver, mm -hmm. but we also need to set ourselves up to deliver more and more productions, okay. right? Mm -hmm. And so we want to increase our input. So more development, more opportunities, have the right infrastructure to deliver the productions, but on the output, we'll call it the monetization point, is it was Mark and it was also one other person. We need to kind of grow that out so we can maximize those opportunities from a monetization and a marketing perspective. Okay. Um, so that's yeah. kind of how I kind of think about it. You know, it's uh, up, up yeah. to date. The company has been very much a bootstrap company, um, which is, you know, you, uh, you hire for the work that there is today. Mm -hmm. So it's a very reactive. It's like, you know, you get a sale. Um, okay, what work do we need? You hire for that, right? So it wasn't for growth. So now we're pivoting partly between, we've got a lot of shows. Um, not only are we delivering great high quality uh, productions, but we're also delivering on the live touring. We're also delivering on the merchant licensing mm -hmm. and distribution as well. So there's a lot of capabilities we need to continue to build out mm -hmm. and support through infrastructure. Um, but, uh, but also to looking ahead now, we've have never really been looking um, from an investment and growth standpoint. So there's certain positions we need to hire to, to allow the support not only for our team to um, continue to deliver great uh, world-class content, but to look forward and say, okay, if this doubles, or not if this doubles, how do we plan for the double or triple or whatever it is, because you know, getting them out of the weeds um, of doing the, the making um, and start looking ahead to so some of our executive team, so. Mm -hmm. um, when Jeff was at Bell Media, had you guys worked closely on, I'm assuming you'd worked closely on projects anyway, which made this a good fit, but maybe if there's any background you're able to, to give on. Yeah, so, so one of my roles is I used to run Crip. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Letter Kenny at the time was you know, a meaningful show. So I was, you know, Mark and I had obviously connected through that. So there's a whole bunch of, we call it both deals and you know, all the pieces around driving letter canning. So, so we were not new to each other. Uh, so obviously to your point, that allows, you know, a, an inherent base of a relationship to know if something's work. And then obviously as we were going through this process, it was the unpacking of, you know, also just, you know, we're actually relatively complimentary, which is great. So that's, that was kind of the stuff that we unpacked. So yeah, you kind of got it. 
Yeah. You know, from our development standpoint, we've gone from a from a place of uh, over the years of hiring traditional uh, development roles, whether it's uh, directors or managers of development. Um, but we we're we are looking at changing that and trying and hiring creative producers, mm -hmm. um, producers who produce and with a focus on producing um, and and an ability to develop with the intent of production. Um, so at the end of the day, we're, we, we produce. Um, so trying to find, uh, it's just looking at a different, slightly different, it's more semantic than it is anything, but the semantic, it starts with the semantics, of mm -hmm. uh, like what the intention is of a role. So we're building and scaling that development team and uh, we, uh, we've just hired two creative producers and an associate producer to work under Bill Lundy, uh, who's our SVP comedy. So we're going to be uh, guns blazing out there mm -hmm. and finding the new next uh, greatest shows out there. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, one of the big questions about comedy is always about can, can comedy travel um, internationally? As you're putting this like, major focus on building um, comedy franchises, are you thinking of them as, as English language comedy franchises? Are you thinking about them as being formatable? Um, yeah, I'd be yeah. Uh, for, for right now, it's English language, um, but that also means formatable as well too. So basically, uh, you know, if you look at a traditional show in, in a drama space, uh, then uh, you'd be able to sell that to however many territories you can sell that around the world. Comedy is harder to sell into foreign language territories, um, but that's where our opportunity for formatting becomes. So where we may not sell the tape, uh, the exploitation in that territory, we have an opportunity to sell the. Uh, um, the uh, the format of it. So one way or another, we'll be able to extract some revenue from as many territories as possible. Mm -hmm. Which is what you're doing on that yeah. yeah. those formats. And exactly. What I'd add is, you know, again, it depends on who you're talking about, your perspective. But I think even if you just take English-speaking territories of largely, we'll call it North America, UK, Australia. Being really simple about it, um, that, there's a really big business to be driven there. Mm -hmm. And so again, what I find is that a lot of Folks, you know, we'll call it. We'll call them independent producers in Canada. They talk about it, but they don't actually know. They're not really doing it. Mm -hmm. And so, I think our opportunity from an economy is like we're thinking about that. From the two things we're thinking about, in addition to making the best damn show there is, is how can we think through our 360 approach and integrate a brand. And two is how can we how can we set it up for we'll call it at least English language travel. Never mind a greater format opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so we're probably thinking about it earlier than otherwise because we're trying to think big mm -hmm. rather than just be like, how do I just get a show on? And I'm really happy about that, mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. But I think the bigger opportunity, frankly, is outside of Canada. And even if you can kind of get US and UK, Australia, you've got a very good business and a robust business to. Yeah. And there are comedies that we're developing that are international in scope. Mm -hmm. You know, you think the Ted Lasso's and that kind of thing, this really opens up the, the, uh, um, the landscape of so where these comedies can go to. Obviously, you're plan you're, you've hired a number of new people, and it sounds like you're hiring, you're planning to hire uh, significantly more. Um, have you taken on new investors, or like, is there any is there any new investment? Um? Yeah. So uh, part of our growth strategy is is uh, raising capital, whether that comes through debt or equity or a combination of both. Um, we are um, we've got a great cash flow um, already, so there's a certain amount of cash that uh, we're able to, to support ourselves with, and certain phases of our growth. Um, and I don't know anything else to add there. No, I, I think in general, like you know, kind of when I kind of say well, why to come on, I'm here to help grow the company organically and inorganically. And when I say the word inorganically, that's an acquisition. Organically is through new lines of businesses, mm -hmm. and so inherently that's going to take money. Um, and so we are actively working through 
you know that process so we can set ourselves up for success and whether that's a bit at a time because it's based on the project or that's a larger bunch that will kind of the market will tell us what what they think is it makes sense but we think we've got a pretty strong story now um, and you know I think that's going to be a good basis to kind of have discussions. Yeah, uh, I mean, right now we're looking mostly in Canada um, and starting with that. But, uh, you know, we're focused on, um, on uh, uh, producers and brands that exist um, or can, can exist. Uh, so our, our model is to build comedy-focused brands. Um, so whether there's a brand that's out there that's, uh, um, that's currently alive or dormant or, or whatever, if we think there's an audience there, um, and there's an affinity to a brand, um, or there's a project in the pipeline that uh, that has brand potential and franchise potential, then then we're interested. Mm -hmm. We're having those conversations. Very strategic. Yeah. Focus. Yeah. Focus. And it, you know, if it's based in the states, that's just as good as Canada. Yeah. yeah. We just have to know more people in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. That's <laughs> that's why we're going out and yeah. Yeah. explore. Uh, last couple for me, and I'll, I'll yeah. wrap it up. Um, have you, I, I've always assumed that Numetric was a, a prime acquisition target for a lot of people. Like, do, do, have you been approached many times over the years? Yeah, I mean, we continue to be. There's been a lot of interest in, in Numetric, and that's great. It's, you know, it feels, feels great and, and uh, honored that uh, there's a lot of interest. Um, you know, from various strategic partners uh, or investors. Um, and, uh, you know, the question is, how does Numetric fit into whatever that entity is that, that's interested? Um, you know, because we do have, you know, it's an interesting company because we've got, we've got our fingers in a lot of different pipelines um, and capabilities, and that's something that's important to the growth of Numetric. So the the whether it's a strategic or equity investor needs to buy into that and be able to support what what our growth plans are as well, and and be able to work together. It's, it needs to it needs to be a great fit for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, but there's certainly been a lot of interest. Yeah, um, I haven't actually asked about any of the shows yet, so maybe uh, I should do that. Yeah, obviously you've got. I think I've, I'm counting four. Uh, actually, I know I know uh, Bria Mac gets a lot. Yeah. Uh, congrats on. on Thank Bria you. Yeah, Thank you. We're so excited about us. that. That's the new one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit um, about how that one came, how that came together. Yeah. So Bria Mac came. Uh, Bria Mac. Uh, Bria Mac gets a life. So I came across about four years ago. Um, I was just scrolling on Facebook and, uh, and someone posted a, uh, a short film. So I just checked it out and uh, I thought it was really funny and uh, um, it was about four black girls. It was called uh, Bitches Love Brunch. It was hilarious and I reached out uh, to find out who directed it and it was Sasha Lee Henry, someone who I'd never heard of before. And uh, so I just did some digging and tried to get a hold of her and we had a call. She was in Thailand at the time and uh, I had a great call with her. And so I say, hey, you know, interested in your what you're doing? Is there anything we can talk about? And she's like, oh, I have a couple of ideas, some things, and uh, I haven't had laughed that hard over the phone. Like I was just talking to side. It was it was, was pre Zoom, so it wasn't even a, a Skype or anything. It was just just a phone call. And she was tell, talking about some of these ideas. And I'm laughing my ass <laughs> off. And I'm like, holy shit, that's hilarious. I said, can you send us something? And then she sent us something. I was blown away. And that was the early days of, uh, of Bria Mac. And so then we, we uh, Numetric, we commissioned a script, a pilot script for her to write, because it's just ideas on a page that she wrote. So we commissioned her a script, and she delivered a fantastic script. Um, and uh, we, uh, of course, have a great relationship with Bell Media, so we brought it to Bell, and we continued to develop it. And we developed it, we, you know, we developed it through uh, a few years. And uh, like that was probably year one before we brought it to Bell. And then we were in development with Bell for about two and a half, three years. Uh, of course, the pandemic slowed a lot of things down. 
um, but uh, Bell's been huge champions of Sasha and and uh, and us and Sasha Star continued to rise you know continuing making short films that were at Toronto Film Fest uh, winning all sorts of awards uh, down at Sundance as well too um, and uh, she's such a, a talented force that uh, we're excited to finally get this show uh, greenlit and start the production in October. Mm -hmm. So in this show, it's not only is it funny as all hell, it's got so much to say about the, uh, uh, you know, 25-year-old female black perspective um, and, uh, and her lived experience. It's, it's so, uh, so poignant and, uh, and irreverent in many ways too, which is, you know, what we like to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but it also has so many great seeds that are planted in there that lend itself perfectly well to the flywheel, the 360 flywheel that we've been building with Letterkenny and Shorzy. So there's a, tour, a touring capability with it, there's clearly a merchant licensing capability uh, or opportunities with it, and of course a great TV show starting with that. Mm -hmm. um, so we're excited about it. It's, uh, like just the way the, the structure of the show is set up, mm -hmm. it lends itself perfectly to all these different things. Yeah. Uh, just final one for me. Is that how you think about the majority of the new shows that you're looking at now? The kind of you know the live aspect and, and the merch. Like do you kind of yeah. it all as part of the whole. But the one thing is, it's like a toolbox. You know, the the live may not work for all shows, but we're always trying to say is there's you know I'll call it our, our ten tools. Which of those tools apply to this show? Because not you know each one's yeah. a fingerprint, but we're always thinking about the toolbox, mm -hmm. and it's got to have that opportunity because yeah. one that's kind of creating who we are. Mm -hmm. And we just think it's it's good business because I think we think it improves our probability of success. Yeah, it's it's important. It's important business right now. Is that uh, we talk about this all the time. Last year alone, there was 559 English language scripted series um, for adult primetime. Uh, 559. Um, add in the foreign language uh, series like Squid Game, Casa del Papel, the unscripted shows, game shows. Now podcasts are, you know, stealing people's ears away from, from our TV sets. Uh, Post-COVID world, there's live entertainment, so people aren't even at home watching stuff anymore as much as you're out doing stuff. We're here now, right? So all these hours, these three days that we're here at this conference, we weren't doing it last year. And, you know, that's that's another two seasons of a show that we're not watching, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's way too much content out there. Uh, so from the one hand, from a producer perspective, it's great, a content boom, we get to make more shows. But from an audience perspective, the amount of shows that I've watched over the last few years that I've absolutely loved the first season or the second season, but haven't gone on to the next season because there's 10 new shiny balls I'm paying attention to now, right? And even though I still think uh, favorably to that show, just it was a time and a moment, right? Mm -hmm. So what we've seen with Letterkenny is with the live touring and the merchant licensing and uh, the beer that's in the LCBO, you're constantly reminded about Letterkenny in fun and different innovative ways that aren't just what I call selfish marketing, which is a billboard that says, hey, watch our show. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you can walk into the LCBO or the beer store in Ontario and check out the, oh shit, there's Letterkenny beer. I need to catch up on the last season. Mm -hmm. It reminds me. Or you walk around in uh, New York City or in Atlanta or in, in uh, Dallas and you see on a marquee it says Letterkenny live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. It's like, shit, I got to catch up the last season and I'm going to buy tickets to that. It just keeps that relevancy alive. Um, it starts with a great show first and foremost. So are we thinking about all this stuff when we, when we develop shows? Yes, but it's got to be a great show first. And if it's a great show first and doesn't lend itself to all 10 of our tools, lends itself to only two, we're still going to do it because it's a great show. But if it does lend itself to all those, holy shit, we're going to be bringing out the guns for it, you know? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, any hopes or objectives for the rest of the year that um, that I should 
include in any story that I that I'm writing? Like, a, are there any like defined defined stated goals that you'd like to hit, either in terms of like number of additional shows that you'd like to to uh, to get into production or into development? Or anything well, like that? you know, one of our problems is is that every time we get a show in development, we get a greenlit. Uh, so we don't have a lot in development. <laughs> so not, not, not a terrible problem to have. No, it's a good problem to have. But so our goal is to get more into into uh, paid development. Um, you know, we do have a we've got a really high track record, uh, a high success rate of uh, in development to turn over to greenlight. Um, so our goal is to get more into paid development, um, and hopefully we'll have more turned over. So we haven't, uh, historically we haven't developed a lot. And this is one of the reasons of bringing Bill Lundy. Bill Lundy uh, and his tenure over Pier 21 has done such a successful job at getting shows into development. And we just, we've always been more boutique in that way where we just haven't, we haven't sold a lot. The ones we've sold for development get made. So now we're in this like, we've got a clear slate again, but we've got all our shows are made. So. <laughs> So, so take that pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So that's our big goal for this year from a creative standpoint. It's like you need more in paid development um, and, uh, and getting it out there. So and if we've got, a, we've got a clean slate to be able to do that with. So in a great, energized, uh, hungry, and, uh, and smart creative team. Mark Montefiore and Jeff Hirsch speaking with Jordan Pinto. Barcelona-based De Planeta Entertainment was formed late last year when Planeta, De Agostini's De Planeta and Planeta Junior brands joined forces. The merged company's kids and family division produces and distributes animated series including Miraculous, Tales of Ladybug and Cat Noir and Milo and this week named former BRB International and Toons Media exec Carlo Bien as content and distribution director. De Planeta Chief Brand Officer Diego Ibanez spoke to Carolina Kaminska about the appointment, the company's latest slate, how the restructure positions it to reach audiences beyond the TV screen, and the opportunities and challenges facing animation in Spain. We are well known by being an international company based in the southern, western, eastern Europe countries. So we are positioning maybe mainly in Europe. Uh, we have offices in all in Spain. We have offices in France, Italy, Greece, Poland, Istanbul. So from there, we've traditionally, since we were born in 2000, we have been developing uh, distribution and licensing in all our countries. We use these strengths in these local markets just to develop the properties. It was a simple world. We just have a distribution team. We speak with the broadcasters and we had a, market, a licensing team with uh, licensing and merchandising, right? The world has changed so much since 2020 that we needed to change to because in our division, there Planeta, we have the fiction and theatrical area too, where we're traditionally more focused to adults. But right now, what can you tell? What, what, what can you tell about what is a target group? I mean, you have kids watching live action and fiction, uh, like Stranger Things and stuff like that, or you can see a lot of adults watching animation. So this division, traditionally, the division for, for us, it didn't make any sense anymore. So we decided just to blend everything, create a single company just to adapt to two times. So, so we merge our key operations, and also we develop a new digital area that obviously is mandatory for us uh, because for IP positioning we need to to get our target groups where they are and this is far from the traditional conversations with broadcasters that we used to have so we need to have this new team which is working for the different productions in the company not just kids and family. Okay and can you talk about the company's strategy when it comes to animation? This is a and this is a good moment to speak about that because we have something new to say today. Actually we've been investing in 
in animation since we were born. So we were always actively looking for international production to buy in order to get distribution rights. And then once that they were placed to develop licensing, as I said. So we've been going more from a commercial role to an active role, especially in the next, in the last 10 years, right? We've been more focused in content creation and IP development because we had a lot of experience at doing that uh, for third parties or for other licensors. So we decided to be a licensor ourselves. But in 2020, again, we just decided just to, not because of the pandemic, because it was right before, but it helped that we had actually developed an independent content division is capable of scouting ideas, develop concepts, work on co-production, look for financing, all these things, right? And even produce with international studios. So we founded this area and then uh, we had Paula Tabor, that, uh, that area. Paula left at uh, the beginning of this year. She went to PGS and we decided just to hire Carlos Vierne, who is very well known in the market. He has an extensive experience with BRB doing production. He's been president of Tibus, which is the Spanish, as you know, animation organization in Spain. He touched all the entertainment polls. He touched inter interactive video games. He's also leading courses. Uh, he's been involved with uh, Animation University and he's been working with Toons Animation this last year. So for us, it was great because he's a producer. He understands animation exceptionally well and he has a very extensive international experience, which for us that have been traditionally European and maybe Latin American because of Planeta Parent Company or Publishing Group, but never in Asia. So Carlos can bring a lot of different um, vision for us and uh, a lot of companies and contacts and studios. This is a world that we want to discover and with Carlos, it's going to be much easier. And so do you want to talk a little bit about some of the animation projects you have on your slate? Of course. I mean, I think that these were, have been born since 2018. So right before we had Paula and this department, but I think that our content department has been able during this pandemic time to bring them to life and to make them stronger and much more relatable to our target groups. It's the case of Milo, which you may know it's a co-production with Fourth Wall from UK. It's a great show we are in love with uh, about this little cat that is uh, exploring the world and playing with professions and vocations with the best friends. So it's something new to the market, which instead of just saying, what can I be when I grow old, it's more like how fun it would be being a whatever is more interesting than being a CEO, as I always say, you know, it's much more interesting to be a baker or to be simply a gym monitor or to be a, a web programmer. And this is something that we wanted to show kids how fun it is. So this show has a lot of heart. And so it received the award of Best Children's Series at the British Animation Awards, which is we are very proud about. It's not very, very easy considering all the good British animation. And we are already working in a new development, a new development for season two. So uh, it's going to be a season two, also with Milkshake, which is airing since 21. And we have placed it everywhere in the world right now, which we are very happy about the, the, the acceptance, right? This is Milo. With Fort Wall, we have also the Super Picks, which is another different show. It's a six to nine fairyland world-based crazy world with fairies are living with humans and we have the super pigs which are defenders of the city from the big bad wolf which is the real villain in the series and it's something completely different which we are right now and in development and working right now in, in the in looking for co-producers and, and financers and we have a an spanish project called tilly it's from an, an ip coming from a theater company in madrid that we have developed with lina foti which is a very well-known australian screenwriter she won an oscar uh she's great 
state and she brings alive a project like uh, is based on kids that are facing challenges every day. So we know, and we will discuss later about how the pandemic has affected, but kids are affected by many other challenges and, and, and even fears no? facing the world that we had in the past. Life is more complicated than it used to be. So we wanted to show how fun it is that they can just really overcome these challenges by themselves. And this is how Tilly is about. These are kids that are living an experience every day, which is from ordering themselves alone in a restaurant or experiencing their first day in school. That's something that we thought that they were, there are challenges in themselves. We don't, you don't need to go to very serious things. There are day-by-day things that are important for kids. And we show with Tilly how they are with this plush toy called Tilly, which is their friend, the plush friend. And with him, they are capable of, of facing these challenges. No? And then lastly, just to mention a, a couple of them, one German property called Magic Lily is a reboot of Excel Lily, the traditional book property uh, from Germany, uh, which is completely reboot. It's uh, and to adapt to the new habits of six to nine audiences, because in the past it was focused on a, on a younger audience. It's going to be an adventure comedy, and it's based on about Lily. She's an impulsive 12-year-old who admires a rock, uh, heroic woman and learns to become a heroine uh, herself through magic, which is something which is very cool. She's a day-by-day using magic for just overcoming your own personal objectives in life, no? which are regular teenager challenges. No? And then we have Monster Shaker, which is a co-production with Goen. It's a studio where we love because they develop uh, Simon, which is a, a property that I personally love. So we had the chance to discuss about this project. It's a co-production also with MCs. It's a comedy action in this case, and it's the, an animation is right now in development, and it's about a boy uh, who earns a, Michael, a magical shaker uh, from his grandfather. And this shaker is capable of creating monsters. So you put things in it, and it creates different monsters with superpowers of the objects that you there. It's so, so, so cool because everything goes wrong every day. He thinks that he will solve his problems using the shaker, but at the end he makes it worse. And uh, it requires uh, just to work with the older sister when to revert the situation and get it back to a normal day without adults noticing. So it's very funny about all monsters, different things. It's a 2D animation, very crispy 2D animation, very nice project. So I can tell you, these are some of the concepts that we have, as you see, UK, Germany, uh, France. So still in Europe, very nice shows with Knights partners. And what would you say that the animation industry in Spain um, has to offer? What what opportunities does, does the um, does the Spanish animation sector present? Well, I, it's, it's not because I'm Spanish, because since I work in Planeta, maybe I'm less Spanish than, I know, I'm Italian, a bit Italian, a bit French, or a bit even Polish, right? But uh, I, I have to say that I really admire Spain uh, animation uh, professionals. I think that our industry has not been very strong. We didn't have that much money, but we are very creative people. I think that as a, as a, as a culture, we are quite creative. So our artists have been looking for projects internationally. This is a good thing of working with animators in Spain. We understand very well international animation because we've been forced to look for <laughs> employers in other parts of the world and they are very talented and they have a great experience and they have done almost everything, right? So they are right now, I think it's excellence, they're finding excellence. Our quality is much, uh, even much better than it was in the past. It, one of the examples is this one shot wiper uh, uh, short that won the Academy Award uh, this year. It's one of these examples. But we are doing many other things like visual effects, live action. So it's it's a great, it's a great uh, place to do animation right now in Spain. Yeah, 
I think that right now we have something that is quite interesting for everybody, which is that our government at last has decided just to take a, a step forward in protecting and, and, and promoting our film, TV, animation, interactive production. It's actually something important for our economy, but we were less expensive. But right now we have tax incentives, which are very important. And even more, if we consider other regions like Canary Islands, for example, that is so well developed and there are many international companies that are producing there. And there are advantages of working with us because aside from what I said before about working globally and how our people are used to work globally, we are very strong in understanding licensing and merchandising in those properties. We are very creative in that too. We are commercially oriented. And also I think that we are very handy for Spanish-speaking countries and also Southern Europe because we share a lot of DNA with France or Italy. And at the same time, obviously, we have the language with Latin America. So it's quite interesting to produce in Spain. Looking at the challenges of animation, what would you say are the biggest challenges? And that can be both in Spain, but also in, in general. I would say that Spain maybe has suffered more because of the uh, of our lack of uh, public funding for our projects. It's something that we don't have. And maybe French uh, or uh, France or Italy has been uh, better protected in, in that sense. But that's my personal opinion. But I would say that our biggest challenge has been the, what uh, has been around the world everywhere, right? It's like, uh, in my opinion, it's like if you just need to think in animation production on a three years basis, you need to look to three years later. And that's a nightmare. It has been a nightmare in the past, but when the world is all changing, can you imagine how it is thinking of a project that has to be on air in three years and you don't even know which platforms uh, are going to be strong and which kind of format is going to be followed by the, by the viewer. So you have to be really, really using your crystal ball just to try to see how kids or how basically audiences where are going to be, you know? So you need to find a combination of partners to achieve the high quality level uh, that viewers uh, have learned to expect these days because competition is stronger and they will have more animation. And at the same time, you have to make it profitable and you have to figure out how the platforms are going to be. So this is a real challenge for us. No? Also, I think that we are, because of the pandemic and the bad news, not only the pandemic, it was the pandemic, now is the war and now is the crisis, we might feel tempted to be a bit patronizing with our kids. That's something that just some temptation from some creators just to be too serious on that. No, right? Uh, we need to entertain for sure, but maybe not to alienate. And that's the heart of another challenge we have in the, in the industry. So yeah, and it's that. And about the format is now, today, they force us to change the way we, we tell stories and we write stories. Uh, as I said, it's absolutely a trend today and we are seeing that a lot of properties are born in social media or even in video games. So it's hard to figure out what's going to happen. Are there any trends in particular that you're seeing at the moment in the animation sector? Yeah, because of what I said before, I think that, and also I mentioned, I have to mention the climate change. Uh, we were discussing about that <laughs> in Madrid or London. Uh, climate change is a reality. And I think that we have seen in that industry, our industry is also very, it's always very entrepreneurial and very proactive in, in exposing these things. I think because exactly what I said, we have to think three years earlier, we are forced just to understand what's going to happen. The pandemic didn't make an easy thing, just sharing ideas, not having these markets just to exchange these ideas. But this, and these trends are coming usually from those places. You were going there to Miami, you listen to people and said, oh my God, it's true. We're discussing about diversity this 
days. So we are uh, we are we are this, uh, we are seeing that it's a movement, fortunate movement about empowering women, and girls need to see that, and we have to start producing right now. And then actually, three years later, newspapers start to speak about that. But the animation industry was there before, and I see that we have right now a lot of climate change trends, and it's good because I think that we are actually making young people, not only kids, just uh, very conscious of the of the problem. We see other stuff like, of course, self-development with emotional intelligence and resilience because we have to tell our kids um, uh, what's happened and this world is hard and they need to understand as soon as possible, as I said before. So these are other themes that we are seeing in the industry. And we see, of course, a lot of projects centered about kindness, inclusivity and acceptance, which is good in these days, right? Um, yeah, and of course, comedy, because we need to laugh a bit. So uh, comedy is... Uh, is it's been always on fire, but these days we are seeing a lot of new comedy projects coming to light. And are there any genres or themes or animation styles, etc., um, that you would like to see more of in the animation sector? Um, for example, is there a type of show or anything that you'd be quite keen to work on next? That's a real good question for closing uh, discussion because we are actually facing uh, these challenges with a lot of uh, excitement. I think this is what I personally I'd love to be actually adapting to all these uh, trends and changes that we discussed before but I think that speaking of an audience for uh, for example that's something that offers an opportunity for us traditionally this kids industry was coming until the 12 year old right now we can say that a 14 year old is not a kid he's not a kid but he's watching some concepts that other 10 year olds are interested in, right? so we see that we have opportunities and we are really looking forward to content that crosses the bridge between passive and active entertainment the new audiences are particularly as we said they, maybe they want to be more passive on some stuff like they like to listen instead of reading but at the same time they want to say their opinion and they want to participate and they want to play with this uh, with the content so we want to develop these ideas mixed with gaming and metaverse so that's obviously implied to be out of the traditional screen but traditional screen can always be a perfect friend for uh, for uh, for these IPs but we are searching for IPs around in conventional sources like NFTs and digital first strategies for the release right now and this is what I think that we need more and I don't see those many or maybe they are not considered seriously by the serious industry that we form part of but we need to see those changes and for younger target I think we are looking for content that are offering uh, an opportunity for co-viewing we don't think that we have to do the same kind of content anymore I think that we can just consider younger targets capable of understanding ideas from a different point of view I think it's about the rhythm about the, the depth of the concepts that you put there just consider that intelligence just to intelligent enough just to, to face this content and you really uh, enjoy it because their life is more complex. So we need to get maybe more complex concepts there. It's the case of Superpix, for example. We are just seeking about letting the kid just to find a solution within this trouble that the, that the episode sets. It's a difference to just set it up all clear from the beginning and let the kid just to be explain what has happened. We want the kids to be an active role in discovering what the, the solution is for the trauma or, or for the trouble, right? So yes, this is what we want. And also, of course, we need stories bringing attention to the natural world. That's something that we look for. Strong characters that actually are conscious about the world and want to protect it in, in innovative and, and inspiring ways. 
these are some ideas that we are looking and we want to do those shows too. And so finally, what are the company's plans and objectives for the next three years or so? I'd really like just to, to be able to increase our level of production to a rhythm of three, four projects a year that are strong brands that are capable of being uh, international uh, international projects, but at the same time, local projects for us. I'd like to have shows that are good for the, the global markets, but at the same time, are good for our Italian viewers or Polish viewers or Turkish viewers. This is not only a matter of rhythm or uh, pipeline, it's also a matter of focus. We want to have a real compelling portfolio. And this is one of our objectives. Another one I would say that we'd really like to be closer to kids in those places where they are. So we will, we really want to produce and to think on entertainment IPs that are not just in the TV. So we want to develop IP concepts based on gaming and being and living 24 hours in the metaverse. That's something that we think is very important for us because our kids are going to share their time within real time and, and, and virtual time. And we want to develop those ideas too. So I would say that these are two of the things that I want to do in the, in the, in the next three years. It's a very exciting to me, this is, I said that in the past many times, this is like a new internet era. I don't see it less important than it was in the year 1995 when we discovered internet. That was a strong, but this is as strong as that because we are going to communities, we are going to experience together content, which is a change in the mind, which is more important to me in this industry that internet has supposed. So we need to embrace that. And for us, I'd like to tell you in three years that Dea Planeta is actually a company that has understood that audiences are in the digital world and not necessarily watching a screen. Diego Ibanez speaking with Carolina Kaminska. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.